Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Devil Edge Devil Bill. This week we travel back to the 1970s for 54 and the Nice Guys. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani here dancing on the disco floor like a granny. And I am Adam Thomas! Hello! We're still keeping up. Mr. Gregorian is in the walls. The walls! Um, But... We are here today, Adam, to discuss a new double feature for the Double Edge Devil Bill, which, if you don't know out there, this is your first time. Uh, each week, Adam and I pick a randomly selected, you know, a good and bad feature, and we cover that feature on the next episode. So at the end of our last episode, we end up picking a good and a bad feature related to this week's topic, which was chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod. More on that a bit later. We do this once a month where we ask them to vote in a poll between two topics to discuss for an episode and uh they decided on uh, for this redemption one where we took a previous loser from one of the polls to go with 70s period pieces which is a fascinating little uh, topic to cover there's so many good movies that have come out that take place in the 70s you know it, it was kind of weird searching for what to pick because everything i kept coming across was like just a great movie that was filmed in the 70s but i think we came up with a couple good ones well one good one when i was younger i remember sort of any big important film seemed like they were either made in the 70s or made about the 70s. I think particularly, I think we both kind of have this where like a lot of movies that came out in the 90s were sort of in that nostalgia cycle to where like, oh, we have to like make movies about like 20 years ago. So because you had kids who grew up in the 70s now making movies like, oh, I want to recapture like what Martin Scorsese did in like 1971 in 1997. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'd argue they were pretty prevalent to about, you know, 2006, 2007. They were still pumping them out quite regularly. I mean, there was a lot of big movies that took place during the 70s that came out. And, I mean, it also helps that, like, when you look back at that era, like, I remember when I first signed on to Facebook, uh, one of the first pages I liked was old, grimy 70s photos of New York City. Because I just, I love the aesthetic of that time. I love, the, like, the look and feel of all of it. And especially when you see, like, the older movies in the 70s, like, when you watch, you know, like an old Martin Scorsese movie or, like, Shaft, any of those black exploitation movies, that kind of grime and grit that's there in, like, any of the big cities like New York or L.A., you really are just kind of, like, immersed in, like, oh, my God, it doesn't feel and look like this anymore. And you're kind of glad because you also don't smell it. And I'm sure if we smelled it, it would be the worst smell possible. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah, just piss and farts. <laughs> Mixed with horrible drugs and quaaludes and beer. Murder. And murder, of course. Yeah, the murder is dashed <laughs> in there, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing about 70s New York that makes me go, I want to visit that. I like to look at it, but nothing makes me want to go back to that and, and, and hang out. I don't want to have the immersive experience of being like, oh, I'm in 1973, no. baby, in New York City. <laughs> We're going to go see Maniac in 4D. 
<laughs> well, it's like someone's really stabbing me in the shoulder. Oh, they <laughs> are! This is crazy! Oh my god! See, back before 40X kids. <laughs> Joe Polito's really sweating on me. This is crazy. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But um, that, that's why it's so interesting, especially when you get like these 70s period pieces. Sometimes they feel like like these real authentic recreations or like people like dressing up. And sometimes that's fun. Like I remember I went to my aunt's 50th birthday a couple years ago and it was like a big 70s disco theme. And there's kind of a fun in getting in the middle of like one of those dance floors where she like she had it all decked out. Like it looked like Saturday Night Fever in terms of like the lighting for like the floor and stuff like that and the disco ball. It's a fun aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. No, I don't. I, I don't know. I, disco never really grabbed me. I mean, I like a couple songs and stuff, and I, you know, I do appreciate that everybody was just kind of having a free will and fun time. It was all about the dancing and how good you looked and <clears throat> cocaine. But <laughs> it, it just, I don't know. Nah, nah, I would have not been happy in the disco era. But you enjoy at least looking at it from like a visual perspective in movies at the same, especially when it's like either of that era or when they recreate it. Oh yeah, definitely. It's. A hundred percent of time long forgot. Right. And uh, we're covering two films uh, that were definitely uh, fit the criteria here. Uh, one of them is uh, Adam's bad pick, which we'll be discussing first, which is 54. And then the good pick we'll be discussing was my good pick, The Nice Guys. Uh, but first, let's talk about 54. Did you ever hear about Steve Rubell? The guy was a genius. He took this club in New York and turned it into the center of the universe. He comped the designers, the photographers, and the record people, and the models, actors, and rock stars followed right behind them. The key to the magic was Steve controlled the door. Right over there. It didn't matter if you were a plumber or a supermodel. Sorry, guys, not with that shirt. I said not with that shirt. If you looked hot enough, you were in. Welcome to my party. Ryan Phillippe, Salma Hayek, with Nev Campbell and Mike Myers. 54. Welcome to the party. So 54 came out August 20th, 1998 from director-writer Mark Christopher, uh, who didn't direct anything before or after this movie, uh, mainly because... Uh, he'd had a very bad experience making it, as well, I think, detailed the very uh, awful production experience of making this particular movie. And if you're unaware, uh, this is a movie that's about, as the title might uh, clue you in on, uh, Studio 54, which was a famous nightclub that, weirdly, I didn't realize only existed from August 26, 1977 to February 2nd, 1980. So, like, a very small, like, not even three-year window that this club was like the massive huge place that it was because it was really known for like the being the biggest like New York disco club that it was a haven for like drugs and sex and had many celebrities that popped up like Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, John Belushi, David Bowie, like just all the big celebrities were there. I would definitely recommend there's like a couple different documentaries, but there's the most recent one from like 2018 where they interviewed uh, Ian Schrader, who was one of the guys that ran along with Steve Rubell, who is depicted in the movie. And, um, Adam, this was your bad pick, uh, so uh, why don't you maybe explain a bit about 54 and uh, why you chose it as a bad pick. Okay, so, obviously 54, as you kind of uh, said, is named after the titular club that was huge in downtown New York. 
and our story follows uh, this guy from New Jersey, this kid Shane, who really wants to get into 54 and really just wants to be somebody. So he gets in finally and gets sort of involved in the lifestyle, the drugs, sex, all that stuff. And then sort of what happens to him and everybody else that lives that lifestyle at the time once 54 sort of shutters its doors. Uh, I picked it because it's terrible. At least the original version. I, I you know, the Ryan Phillippe is just so uncharismatic. Brecken Meyer, to me, who was also in the movie, would have been a more fun lead. Um, Sama Hayek's, eh, yeah, yeah. but the big thing that I always take away from this movie is Mike Myers doing this over-the-top sticky character <laughs> that it just he's he's okay in it, but I can't not see Mike Myers doing a character. Like at no point does he transform, and I'm like, oh my god, it's like Steve Rebell. Mike Myers is really it, it to me, it just feels like Mike Myers doing a Saturday Night Live character. Uh maybe a little bit muted, but nah. I will say this: the music's good. It is got all the hits, and uh Nev Campbell shows up for a fun little part. Um, other than that, I just, I, I just, this movie fucking is just bad. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't, I find myself not giving a shit about anybody in the movie. And once that happens, then I'm checked out. Yeah. I had not seen this before you decided to pick it as a bad pick. I'd only heard of it mainly because of like the sort of, uh, Mike Myers of it all, given this came out like right after the first Austin Powers, like in between the first and second one. And it was sort of his attempt to do like, a. Um, a more like Oscar Beatty sort of like dramatic part. Um, and I'll say that even, I agree with you that the original cut is very bad. I think it feels very, even if I didn't know any of this stuff, which I was not aware of like the severe editing controversies that happened on this movie, even though shocker, it's a Miramax movie. So of course a certain piece of shit edited the shit out of this movie and took it away from the director. He did that a lot. You know who we're talking what? about. What? <laughs> He has the nickname Scissorhands for a reason. <laughs> to, to, to quote my fucking letterbox, anytime I hear the opening Miramax piano thing, I feel dirty. Yeah. Um, even without any of that um, knowledge of like it being severely edited or whatever, it feels weirdly disjointed as a movie, the original cut. I saw both the original and the director's cut, but before I even go into any differences, I think Mike Myers is actually the most consistent interesting thing about it. And I think that's probably helped by, I watched the 2018 Studio 54 documentary, um, and it's a dead-on impression of that guy, of Steve Bell. Like, that sort of, like, weird awkwardness, the kind of, like, looseness because he's clearly on so many drugs at any time and shit like that. It's a very accurate depiction of that guy. And I think it's an interesting performance that I, I agree kind of, like, goes into sort of, like, comedic moments. But at the same time, I don't think that really lessens the fact that I believed him as that particular character. And I do agree with you also that no matter what version of this movie, I've never been a Ryan Phillippe fan in general. But I will say that I did watch that director's cut. And uh, despite, you know, th there was a whole thing where, like, the original director, Mark Christopher, um, had this version that was test screened. And it was severely chopped up mainly because the guy who we were referencing, Harvey Weinstein, um, did a whole thing where he wanted to make it more of like a Saturday Night Fever movie instead of what the original cut is, which you mentioned the sex element earlier. In the uh, director's cut, it is far more explicitly sexual to the particular degree that the Ryan Phillippe character is bisexual in the original cut. And he has oh. specific feelings toward both Selma Hayek and Breckenmeyer. In the theatrical cut... It's so bizarre how that whole thing happens with, like, all the scenes where it's, like, they go to, like, the dance lessons or whatever, and she's he's next to Selma Hayek and Breckenmeyer's like, yo, what the fuck are you doing? Get near my wife. What the hell is this? And then they, like, have their big 
break up as like a friend group or whatever. It's like so tacked on because that's all the reshoot shit. As opposed to in the original cut, they are there's much more sexual tension between him and Selma Hayek, and then also with him and Breckenmeyer. They have like a whole kiss scene and stuff like that. And it oh. has there's a lot more like open actual like homosexuality and all this other stuff, which of course Harvey Weinstein had completely edited out of the theatrical cut, which is interesting in that it kind of parallels the fact that in the origins of disco, it, you can find it a lot more in like clubs that served underrepresented communities like the queer community and people of color, a lot of stuff like that. And they created disco as sort of like a more freeform way of expressing themselves, which shocker, uh, after that happened, a bunch of uh, cisgender heterosexual white dudes in particular uh, decided to take that trend and commercialize it and exploit it and turn into stuff like Saturday Night Fever and Disco Duck and all this other shit that took something pure and interesting and wild and uh, burned it to the ground, literally. And I think the original cut goes into that a bit more. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that white people took over something that wasn't for them? (laughs) No, I refuse to believe that. Yeah, I've sat down at him after this and have a long discussion (laughs) about cultural appropriation. (laughs) Oh, God. White people fucking suck. I know. Like, if you listen to this podcast, you're aware. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now I want to see the director's cut. Because the one thing I will say about this movie, for some fucking reason, it's one of those movies that I hate. Yet every time it's on, I watch it. I don't know if it's because I'm sort of fascinated by the whole 54 scandal, which I do find really fascinating. And the Steve Rubell of it all and all that. And especially how sort of all of his other partners got sort of forgotten about he became sort of like the head guy and like the the face of it all and all i just find it very fucking fascinating there are certain scenes too where like the scene with ryan philippi and salma hayek was like i feel like i'm losing you i end up losing him now it makes more sense <laughs> like at first i'm like what is happening here you just got into an argument with your buddy like i don't understand but now i get it like, oh, okay, that makes way much more sense. And I really like that. And also it gives a little bit of cadence to why Breckenmeyer was almost going to do what he did with Steve Rubell. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just, there's a lot. I really wish that would have stayed in. Well, and that's, I, 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 you're referring with the seat with uh, Breckenmeyer about him stealing the money. No, but he was almost going to let Steve Rubell. Oh, yes. Right. Show on right. It. And th- th- there's a, there's a lot more of that too, particularly that like, the whole thing about, oh, you were supposed to get the bartending job next after me. And Ryan Philippe keeps saying, like, oh, man, I totally did. No, I talked to him. And he addresses Steve Rubell, but like, so, uh, Ryan Philippe was talking to you? Oh, no, he never said anything about that. <laughs> and there's a crushed look on his face. That's the biggest problem, honestly, for me watching that director's cut. It's like, I don't think it's a great movie, necessarily. Sure. But I feel like it could have been a real big springboard for, like, Mark Christopher or even. Brecken Meyer's a dude who, like, I like as a personality. I've liked Mm -hmm. certain things and like, because, you know, Clueless and Can't Hardly Wait stuff like that. He's a fun presence. I feel like this movie could have started him on the edge of becoming like more of like an actual bigger actor as opposed to a guy who does robot chicken voices, which is what he does now. Yeah, which I had more power to him. I I was kind of saying the same thing. I was was watching this movie with my wife. Even then, I'm like, man, I like Breckenmeyer. Like, I I really do. I wish he would have gotten more, but who knows? He's probably perfectly fine and content. Right, I'm sure it is, but they, they deal with a lot of stuff with him, particularly, like, there's a lot more about how he's, the a big reason why he's not really picked is because he's too short to be a bartender, basically. Yeah, there's one line with that, I think, in the in the actual theatrical version. I think it's addressed once or twice that he's short. 
Right, as opposed to here. And and even the fact that, like, in the original cut, the fact that they remove all of that sort of, like, bisexuality and all this other, like, queerness to it, I think really hurts a lot of elements, particularly that the one significant gay character at all in the movie is Steve Rubell, who is shown trying to abuse his power in order to have... Yeah. Like, that scene is still in the theatrical cut, but there's more than one, like, representative of the queer community, as opposed to just Steve Rebell vomiting on his money. Yeah, after trying to force someone to let him blow them. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Using his power as his boss. And I, yeah. And there's just even smaller changes that I love about the director's cut. Like, there's the bit where... That makes no sense, the theatrical version, where they, after their first night, they all put their stuff on the uh, fucking, like, the diner table and stuff like that. And immediately cut yeah. to Selma Hayek and Rick and Meyer bringing him over and like, hey, you could stay at our house, be Casa Sukasa, bro. And then the montage happens. In the director's cut, the montage is in between those two bits. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. It makes way more yeah, sense. Cause, yeah, because I, I swear to God, every time I see this movie, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, he just met him tonight. Right? <laughs> like, like, yeah, you can live here, buddy. Like, it's, yeah. Okay, but, well, that's a lot better, too. Like, if you Lord. want a masterclass, even just some of the simplest editing tricks, like, that's a great example where that montage gives you so much more, like, oh, they spent, like, I don't know, at least a couple weeks together. So then they're, like, Mikasa, Sukasa, or whatever, and they, like, they dance by the bar or whatever. Makes way more sense than he would invite him over to stay at his fucking house. Instantly. How the fuck I, I, did I never notice that that was Mark Ruffalo before? I, I mean, that was the fr- like the first thing I noticed. Just like Ryan Philippe comes up to his buddy, he's just like Mark Ruffalo with a mustache. I, I, I know I haven't seen it in so long. But like, wait a minute. If anything, more more Ruffalo trying to get into the club. Just like, hey man, let me in. What's the matter? Come on, I'm Mark yeah, Ruffalo. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, give me that for sure. <laughs> fuck you. you know, trying to sneak in with those people. <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. They barely lean into the IRS stuff. It's just kind of hits and comments like what they don't know won't hurt them and blah, blah, blah. And then the IRS raid and it's over. Well, the thing is, I actually prefer in the director's cut, they don't have any of those scenes where like the IRS are like skating, like, look at that son of a bitch rebel. Yeah, look yeah. At him. Like they don't really have that. They just have like a couple hints of like, oh, the IRS might be investigating me, but whatever, it's fine. And the actual ending bit where like they're raiding, that's the first time you see any of the guys. Oh, see, I prefer that. Right, yeah, I prefer and, that. and more importantly, the big tip-off they have is um, the person who lets them in is Viv, the lady who he fired, like, oh. midway through, who, oh. I don't know why she has to be, like, there at the raid, necessarily, but she's there, like, oh, no, you caught us, we're getting all the money out of the fucking place, um, which makes way more sense than, like, that one drug dealer dude, where, like, why would he tell the IRS anything, because <laughs> he's, like, a drug dealer? Yeah. Because they found a little bit of drugs in his car. The big thing that I think they change that really works is Nev Campbell becomes the weird love interest for Ryan Philippe. And I was really bothered by that, particularly like near the end of the movie where they have like more like, oh, let's like be friends together in the bowling scene or whatever. In the director's cut, it's much more of like she represents the life he wanted to have. It's like, oh, I want to be famous. I want to be around famous people. And like the scene happens where like she he goes over to the dining hall and meets her at Christmas uh, but the bowling scene doesn't happen, and at the very end, she offers him a ride in the limo, but he's like, no, I'm going to go off with my friends, because, like, Breck and Meyer and Selma Hayek are actually in that scene at that point, and the movie ends with them going off together, instead of that stupid fucking, like, epilogue that happens in the theatrical cut, where Seaver Bell comes out of prison, and they all have the big reunion at Studio 54. Oh, that's not in the director's? Not at all. Nope. <laughs> oh, man. Wow, that sounds like a good movie compared to this. 
Right. Or at least it's semi-okay movie. Well, right. The, the thing is, like, the, the way I can differentiate the two is the 54 theatrical cut feels like a movie that would pop up on, like, TNT, and you'd be like, oh, I'm getting tired of this. I'm going to change the channel. The director's cut is a movie you would watch on TNT and be like, this was solid fun. This works. This is all right. Gotcha. Which is a massive improvement, honestly. Massive. Massive improvement. They had a lot more context and detail, even to somebody like the Disco Grandma, who I referenced earlier, which shout out to Ellen Alberti, who most would know from uh, the same year. She was in The Wedding Singer as the rapping granny. Yeah. Who plays Disco Dottie in this. Like, they have the scene that's in the theatrical cut with, like, her uh, and her granddaughter at the pharmacy and stuff like that but there's a lot more scenes of her hanging out with everybody at the club and even a point where ryan Phillippe during like the big new year's thing right before that in the director's cut he takes like a hit off some like crazy fucking psychedelics and he's going crazy at the bar and she comes over and sees that he's wigging out grabs his hands just says just breathe you'll be fine just breathe everything's fine and it's like an actual connective moment so when she dies you actually give way more of a shit Instead of her just being like, I'm the wild disco daddy, look at me. They actually give her, like, a character. Yeah, because I definitely did not give a shit. <laughs> I mean, 100%. And you get that one moment where they're in the pharmacy or whatever, because he's got the clap. And you're supposed to be like, oh, crazy. But yeah, I don't, you don't really care. Right. I suppose they actually give her a bit more context. Like I said, I don't want to just keep comparing the theatrical and the director's cut, but it's kind of hard to when, like, you have so much of the theatrical cut that has, like, so much of, like, even you mentioned, like, the sex thing. Like, so much of the sex is removed that it feels weirdly, like, devoid of any, like, actual sexual heat in the middle of fucking Studio 54, a club famous for having, like, sexy people in it. You get a really, really bad uh, Andy Warhol and a really bad Truman Capote. Right, which I, I will say this is a problem regardless of the cuts, is that despite the fact that that fucking club was known for having so many sexy people in it, uh, celebrities, clearly they couldn't have, like, the rights to show off some actual people likeness rights beyond Andy Warhol and Truman Capote, even though there's the weird thing where, like, apparently, if you look up, like, the IMDb cast list, there are a bunch of celebrities who are in, like, the actual club like celebrities we would know, like Cheryl Crow apparently is amongst the people in there, uh, Cindy Crawford, Heidi Klum, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Art Garfunkel. Like, they're in the club. You can just barely notice them in any cut. I didn't see anybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, is that like the, the movie doesn't quite focus enough on any of like the celebrity angle of it. But at the same time, there's stuff like, no matter what the cut, I think the, the actual look of 54 fits for like a sort of dingy club version that still has like all this elaborate setups and like the production design. It looks very accurate to the club. I mean, it it looks like they gave enough care to try. I mean, you can't say they didn't try at least the director didn't. It's just unfortunately that his movie got absolutely shredded by uh, he who shall not be named. Even though we, I have named him a couple of times previously, but but I, I, yeah, that's true. Right, but but anyway, point is like this is such a great example where like I don't think like I said the director's cut doesn't make this a great movie necessarily, but I think it makes it a more interesting look at particularly Fifty Four with even weird elements like some of it is from like an old like VHS negative because they couldn't get like the actual uh, original uh, footage of it, but that kind of weirdly works for the movie because it almost looks like you're watching footage of Studio Fifty Four. Like, someone snuck a fucking camera in circa 1978 
or whatever. And you're just watching people dance on the dance floor in the middle of all that. And like I said, there's a lot more just casual sexuality. Like I love, there's just certain points where two of the bartenders who aren't even Ryan Philippe, just like the random background guys are just kissing each other. Or even during Ryan Philippe's big like montage where he's like having sex with just a bunch of girls. There's a couple guys in the middle of that mix. Like, it's a movie that's very casual about just, like, yeah, you know, there's no problem with any of the bisexuality. And even with, like, Ryan and Philippe's character, the problem is just that he wants to sleep his way to the top and doesn't really care about the feelings of any of the people that he's fucking. Right. I mean, I could have really maybe used that because what we got, again, is just it doesn't work. And the thing is, I'm okay with having unlikable characters. Unlikable characters I can totally deal with. But it's characters that you literally don't give a shit what happens to them either way, then, you know, that sucks. But what, from what you're telling me, at least even with the Shane character, like they flesh him out to give him a little bit more of a motive and more of a s- actual character arc compared to what we get to where he's just hunky boy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just... Right. That's the thing. The whole it's just oh, good-looking people doing sexy stuff, and there you go. You're supposed to build, enjoy a whole movie about it, and you know sometimes that does work, uh, but not when it's a movie that's begging you to take it so seriously. Right, and even like the the big problem still is like I think that's there on the page for that character, but Ryan Phillippe still, regardless of the cut, is not the best actor necessarily and it's more of what? like have you seen him play sexy saxophone? <laughs> well, look, he he is sriracha hot. <laughs> As we <laughs> put a pin in that for whenever we do a discussion wish upon hopefully in the near oh future boy. it has oh to boy. happen but um but yeah like philippe is like in, in the movie in, in any cut is still like he's playing much more of like the the boy toy angle of it but never really kind of gets invested in like that darkness or even like the i wish there was more of him kind of dealing with the class issue of like people dismissing him as just the hunky boy like the scene where they go over to like uh the the big party where um along with mike myers and sufi uh basil exposition himself michael york shows up um oh yeah just to be just like oh look at you you're such a pretty boy and aren't you so lovable i wonder if that was a favor <laughs> look basil exposition just wanted to check out on austin make sure that his club mission was going well he has to catch dr evil adam come on yeah yeah that was something. I do wish there was a lot more of that even, but at the same time, the director's cut makes the best decision possible with Ryan Philippe and gets rid of that oppressive voiceover. In the theatrical oh. cut, it is so like over-explaining every detail as opposed to in the director's cut, only the bit at the very beginning where he's describing the era is there, and even then, it's re-recorded. So it's like 2014 era Ryan Philippe. So it's almost like him looking back at that time. He's like, I remember 54 back in those times. You know, Sriracha Hot Dad era. <laughs> Ryan Philippe. <laughs> looking back yeah. at him. Which, like, vastly improves once again. Because you just have these scenes play out where you get to discover, like, every element of the club without being overexplained. But it's astonishing just how much, like, s- certain ending tricks. And more importantly, 45 minutes of footage that they fucking cut out at versus the 30 minutes that they had to reshoot that's in here, like, one of my least favorite scenes in the theatrical cut, where they have to have the bit where, like, they break up. Breckenmeyer and um, Ryan Phillip oh, break up their yeah. romance at that one part of the club. And it's just like, man, it's Christmas, and you know, you're just trying to fancy my wife who I saw you in this cut, like, dance with at a disco training class? Or whatever? Yep. 
that's just like everything's fucked up and you're fucking me over and then that leads to the scene where he like interrupts Selma Hayek as she's dancing with that one dude as like the party's basically over versus in the director's cut that's the scene where they like they're down at the bottom of the club everyone's left and Ryan Philippe and Breckenmeyer kiss at that point then Breckenmeyer's like oh I don't know how to feel about this and then leaves and that's when that other moment happens with Selma Hayek so it's like oh that makes way more sense once again yeah what the fuck oh well never mind we know why Right, we know exactly why, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, you know what? We've talked quite a bit about uh, this movie and its various iterations. So let's just get to, to final thoughts here, Adam. Your final thoughts on uh, the, at least the theatrical cut of 54. Like I said, it's boring. It's, it's, it, it, it takes itself way too seriously for what they're trying to give you, and it, it doesn't connect really on pretty much any level for me anyways. But, uh, you know, for some reason, it's one of those, if it's on, if I, if I can't find anything else, I'll just leave it on. Um, I don't know why I couldn't explain to you why it's like deuces wild, you know, where if it's on, I'm watching it. Another masterful period piece, deuces wild. Yes, absolutely. If you haven't seen it, don't, uh, but it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It just, I think it's a huge missed opportunity from what I'm hearing. The director's cut sounds like maybe on more of the right track, but as far as theatrical one goes, it just sounds like a, just a really dull fart. Yeah, I will agree with the Antiquette being a really dull fart. Um, and so it, even though the director's cut is definitely not that, there is still at least at the same time a bit more wanting with it. I think especially with, like, you mentioned, like, some of the stuff with uh, Seaver Bell. Like, they don't even have, like, a uh, approximation of his uh, cohort, the Ian Schrader character. And if you watch any of, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff about the actual club, just some of the fascinating things. Like, they were involved with a whole scandal where, like, they tried to frame um, a chief of staff who for Jimmy Carter who visited the club that he, like, snorted cocaine. And it was all, like, a weird conspiracy thing put on by Roy Cohn, who's big buddies with the Reagan administration at that time and was their lawyer trying to get them away from tax evasion. Like, a lot of that stuff is missing here. And I can accept that for, like, wanting to have, like, the more intimate kind of, like, look at, like, an oh, from, like, the people who worked there kind of perspective. And in the director's cut, there's a bit more of that, even with Ryan Philippe's issues. There's a bit more fascinating context, especially about, like, the sort of bisexuality that's there and just the, the open sexuality that is kind of missing from a lot of movies about this era. Uh, but, yeah, still, at the same time, neither is necessarily the best example of a 70s uh, period piece, despite some of the period aesthetics being there. Uh, but, but yeah, at the same time, if you're going to watch any cut of this uh, out there, I would recommend the director's cut, even though don't have the expectation of, like, oh, masterpiece, lost classics. Like, no, it's a pretty good movie, as opposed to a wet fart... <laughs> Like we mentioned. Yeah, doll fart. Doll well, fart. Doll fart. I'm sorry. Even a wet fart's a bit more interesting than the doll fart. Exactly. Uh, but let's get into our good pick, The Nice Guys. Who is it? Messenger service. March, we're going to play a game. I have to give the wrong house. It's called Shut Up Unless You're Me. I love that game. Give me a lift, Arnold. No! Yeah, come on. Deep breath. If you got trouble with someone, you might ask around for me, Jackson Healy. There's a couple of people I trust say you're pretty good at this. I want you to find Amelia. You're the guy who beat up my dad. Sucker punched your dad. Look at the 
bright side. Nobody got hurt. People got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. So uh, The Nice Guys uh, came out May 20th, 2016, from director and co-writer Shane Black, along with uh, Anthony uh, Bagrosi. And uh, we've talked about Shane Black a couple times on the show, Adam, in terms of uh, he co-wrote Monster Squad, and he was the big force behind Iron Man 3. But we've never really talked about, like, a standard Shane Black movie, what he was sort of his bread and butter at least uh, during his main sort of era in the uh. 80s. Uh, this is the first closest to that, even though this is a more recent film, obviously, but it feels very much in the vein of his detective movies uh, that he would have made around, you know, like your Lethal Weapons or um, your uh, the Last, Last Boy, Boy Scout. Scout. Right, yeah, stuff like that. And um, this was a movie that he made out the success of Iron Man 3, which made a billion dollars, so he was like, given carte blanche to do what he wanted and he made the nice guys which is a script he'd been working on for a while had reworked certain places including uh, almost made it a tv pilot for cbs that didn't ultimately work out uh but he was able to make this and it stars russell crowe and ryan gosling as two lower end detectives uh russell crowe is a guy who um is reeling from his uh girlfriend breaking up with him and cheating on him with his father um, and at the same time, Ryan Gosling has recently been widowed and is having to raise his daughter, uh, played by Angoria Rice, uh, but is in a very depressive state. And uh, the two intersect with each other when Ryan Gosling is trying to investigate this woman, played by Margaret Qualley, who hires Russell Crowe to beat up Ryan Gosling. Uh, but then Russell Crowe finds out, oh, she's, she's part of some bigger situation because a bunch of thugs try and beat him up. So he ends up hiring Ryan Gosling to help him investigate what's going on and it leads into a twisted tale um, about the porn industry in L.A. and a bunch of other stuff. It's a fun little detective movie, and that's why I chose it, especially because I think it's a really good 70s period piece kind of movie. Uh, but what do you think of The Nice Guys, Adam? I think The Nice Guys is one of the most underappreciated movies of the last decade. I think that what Nice Guys is absolutely sterling comedic uh, timing, acting, great mystery story, great-looking movie. I mean, it looks the shit. It looks like you were dead ass in 1970s LA which is crazy because it's filmed in Georgia but it's it's just it's a fantastic movie and Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling just ooze chemistry together and also Ryan Gosling dude physical comedy that guy's really really fucking good at it uh no I think it's a great movie I I, I absolutely love this movie yeah, it's really interesting with the two of them where you have Gosling, who this was at a period where this is like the same year as La La Land. And he was still kind of like the you know interesting, moody, pretty boy, still kind of going off that drive image. And uh, this was such a like breath of fresh air. It was just like, oh my God, you're, even though he was great, obviously, in those other roles, seeing him be like this kind of squirrely, manic character, he's so fun at that. And by contrast, Russell Crowe, who at, this is a point where it's after sort of like his heyday, and he's like firmly in sort of like the you know, heftier Russell Crowe era that he's kind of in. I love hefty. I I love hefty. That's the thing. Yeah. Even though I like a lot of early Russell Crowe movies, but I think my favorite period has been his recent hefty period. Cause he he just has like this really fun, like brawler energy to that where he's like, he's very lovable and cuddly at points, but also very like big and intimidating. And this movie, he does that so well with particular, like the contrast between him beating the shit out of Ryan Gosling and making Ryan Gosling make that fucking scream which is hysterical, uh-huh. so fucking funny. But then also the relationship that he, he even has with the Holly character, 
uh, where so much of it is just like, oh, you're not going to like actually kill so many of these people, right? You're not going to be that guy. And it's Russell Crowe kind of wrestling with being that kind of tough guy character. Um, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. It's a great example where Shane Black is one of those guys where like when he made Le- wrote Lethal Weapon, which for the record... It's so bizarre. Like, that dude wrote that as, like, a, a spec script right out of college. He was 21 years old. Yep, if right. you want to feel bad about your accomplishments. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good God. <laughs> How does a 21-year-old write Lethal Weapon? I know, and then all those movies afterward, oh, he wrote by the time he was, like, what, like, 35? <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, also was in Predator. Right, also was in Predator and stuff like that, and was, like, one of the highest-paid screenwriters in Hollywood throughout that era. It's so fascinating, like, seeing him even go back to it at this point, where, like, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang had happened, like, in 2005, and he still showed he could do that and directed, especially that was his debut as a director. But, like, Iron Man 3 had a bits and pieces of that element, but seeing him go back fully, just like, no, we're, like, full-on detective story that has, like, all this comedy stuff, all this great elements that, like, we loved about Shane Black in... On that level, like it's really funny and character-driven, but also it genuinely has a lot of pathos and sadness to it. Like these two guys, despite being like all wacky comedy characters to some degree, are also incredibly sad people who have been just chewed up by life, and you believe that at the same time, which makes the comedy work all the more because it's just like, oh, I believe these pathetic people who have seen at their lowest. So when they do comedic shit, I'm more invested in their story. Oh yeah, hundred percent. These guys don't have it together at all. No. <laughs> Ryan, Go- Ryan Gosling is a mess. Russell Crowe's living in some office building somewhere. I mean, they got literally nothing going for them at the start of this. And at the end, you'd argue they really don't either, but at least there's hope for the future. Right. But even then, they still have taken certain steps backwards. Like the big mystery they solve at the end, uh, everything clears up for the bad guys. They There's no evidence to convict them, quote unquote. So everything's fine there. And Russell Crowe goes back to drinking. He's off the wagon at the start of the movie, and he becomes a drinker again by the end. Yeah, sure. And right out of the bottle, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On Christmas, of course, because even though most of the movies take place at Christmas, by the end, Shane Black has to put Christmas in there. Yeah, it's his thing, man. Yep. You know, I don't fault him for it, whatever. And, and wait, Matt Bomer as the as like a heavy, he really works in this too. Like he's completely believable as this sort of good looking assassin. Like it totally works. I mean, like the whole supporting cast is full of great people where you got him, you got, um, Keith, um, David. Keith, Keith David, of course, popping up as a character who I don't even think like they say his name, but I just love him uh-huh. popping up and he's just like got the best of the outfits. So many great outfits in this movie, but particularly that red suit he's wearing during the climax just like that looks so oh, it's fucking phenomenal. dope, right? And, yep. and even like other people, like Kim Basinger, I always forget is in this fucking movie, and she's great. Oh yeah, me too. Or even do you know the the cameo uh, by a certain person who plays a dead body in this movie? Fucking Bobby Downey Jr. Yep, Robert Downey Jr. doing a favor for old Shane Black, <laughs> popping up as a corpse. Or even shout out to, of course, Hannibal Burris who plays the bumblebee that shows up during the dream. <laughs> Oh, that, it, yep, that's right. I forgot about that one, too. Which also yeah, set, yeah. set up for, like, my favorite of many funny gags in this movie, where the, and during that dream sequence, Russell Crowe establishes that he has, like, an ankle gun, and then obviously uh-huh. it's a dream, so he wakes up, but then later, Ryan Gosling tries to go for the ankle gun during a confrontation, It's he's just like, wait, you don't have an ankle? No, I don't. Oh, did I dream that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's like Gosling at the end when he sees Nixon in the pool. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Shane Black, uh, one of the kings of setup payoff. Yep. I mean, and it, you know, they're, my two favorite bits in this movie both uh, revolve around Gosling. Uh, one is his very beginning, you know, fuck up where he punches through the glass. Yes. It slices his wrist. Oh, it's it's so a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. 
That's <laughs> so fucking funny. He goes to the hospital. He almost dies. Uh, great. And then my other one is when Russell Crowe goes to that whole story with him about Nixon and all that. And he's like, so you're telling me sometimes things appear di- two different ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Why the fuck did you just say that to begin with? Why'd you go through this whole long board thing? If you're just going to tell me at the end, things look different to different people. <laughs> I love that, though, because what it, it's like the deconstruction of that classic buddy cop bullshit to where one of them will tell them you know the other one this long story you know get them to relate over it and all that and it's the absolute opposite of that where this big long this moment that russell crowe is attempting to have where i doesn't give a fuck <laughs> it's just so funny or even later on when like russell crowe unravels about like the whole thing where like he stopped that gumming at the diner and he has the most tragic line that he has in the whole movie it's just like for once i felt useful and Ryan Gosling, they like, cut over, and he's just like asleep on that fucking diving board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, of course, of course, the toilet stall bit. Right. Just the timing of the fact that initially, like, he bursts open the thing, and then the cigarette falls in his fucking pants. It's like, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then he kicks <laughs> it with one leg, and it comes back over. And, and then the other. other leg. <laughs> yeah. And then pins it open with the gun. Yep. Yeah. What, are you kidding me, man? I got a license to carry this motherfucker <laughs> you want to see it <laughs> it's so good it's so good it's honestly why like it's such a bummer that right after this like he does like the la la land and then blade runner 2049 and he takes just such a big break from acting like the uh-huh. that gray man movie that's i believe come out as the time we've released this episode it's his first movie in like four or five years I think he was busy, like, with his kids and all that stuff. Right, right, right. But at the same time, I hope, like, he does more stuff like this. Like, that's why, amongst other things, I'm kind of excited to see him as Ken in that Barbie movie. A thousand percent. All that set stuff, like, he's screaming and shit like that. I'm, like, so on board. I want to see him do. He like, looks so ridiculous. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I have a thousand percent. That and the fact that Greta Gerwig's directed and, it. And, her, and her husband, Noah Baumbach, co-wrote it with her. Two Academy Award nominees making a Barbie movie. <laughs> Making a Barbie movie. What the fuck? <laughs> very curious to see how that goes for various reasons. But yeah, like with Gosling in here, like he is such a comedic powerhouse in this whole movie. Oh, he's not 100%. afraid to like, like obviously like he was so known for like an early point of like, oh, he's such a pretty boy. But I love the fact that he's so willing to embarrass himself throughout this whole fucking movie and look like an ass. Like particularly the bit where he sees the dead body of Robert Downey Jr. And does a Lou Costello like... <laughs> It's so yeah, funny. it's so good. Like that, or like how many times he just like falls on his ass or like vomits. Like after that bit where they go up the elevator and they see a horrible shootout's going on, they need to go back in the elevator and Gosling's like vomiting. <laughs> oh yeah, no, dude, he's a he's a he's a complete buffoon in this movie. <laughs> and it just works great. I think I'm invincible. What? I gotta be. I don't think I could fucking die. <laughs> He's just a complete idiot, dude. Right. But I love I love him to pieces, you know. Uh, let's play a game. It's called I Talk and You Shut the Fuck Up. <gasps> I like this game. <laughs> and he's getting the shit kicked out of him. Oh, I like this game. He's so fucking good. I, I just, even that bit alone, when they first meet, how slowly he tries to do everything to try to get away from Russell Crowe. Like he goes to get the gun and he's just fumbling with the lid of the cookie jar. He goes to grab it off the floor. Russell Crowe beats him there first. I mean, it's just, he's just such a moron. 
Right. And I think, but at the same time, I love that there is still a heart to that buffoon in a way that almost reminds me of like a Homer Simpson with the way that he interacts with his kid. Yeah, with the way of the kid. Yes. With right. the kid. That's yes. why, like, because, like, he has that same energy of, like, in the best of, like, stretch of Homer Simpson where, like, there's the point where they go to, like, the party and her, his daughter sneaks in and it's like, oh, look, dad, there's whores and stuff. Hey, don't say and stuff. Just say there are whores here, honey. <laughs> like, he wants to teach her something, but at the same time, is completely oblivious to the main lesson he should teach. Right, and I really love one of my favorite bits too, when he they show him taking on the case and he sees the urn, yeah, and realizes that the woman wants him to look for her husband, her dead husband, and he's just such a con man, where he knows like, oh god, this is ridiculous. Well, how long has he been missing since the funeral? Okay, I'll take the job. <laughs> like he's just such a piece of shit. But yeah, no, but like I was saying earlier, their chemistry. It's some of the best in shit. Well, I guess pretty much every Shane Black movie where it's a buddy cop type, the chemistry usually is really good between the leads. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover had it. Uh, Bruce Willis and Wayne's had it. Gina Davis and Samuel Jackson had it. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just he's really good at putting actors together that really can bounce off each other. And these guys are no exception. Um, I, you know, in comparison to our last film, I find myself really wanting to see where these guys are going to go next. Um, I think, I, I know we're not ever getting a sequel, but this is one that I'd have been like, I could have done with a sequel for this. No, 100%. Yeah, and it's a shame that people uh, went and saw, like, the Angry Birds movie, I believe, came out the same weekend. It was the it's... big, it was, the, Angry Birds was the biggest movie of the year that year. I believe. Um, I mean, no, there, it was one of those, like, it was Civil War or some bullshit. <laughs> like, it was the biggest movie of that month. It was like May of 2016 or something. No, I, I think that would have been Civil War. <laughs> the would have come out around that time. I think that would have been the bigger one. That's why I said that month. I don't think Civil War came out that month. It, it, I believe it came out like early May, if I'm right. But whatever. Regardless, point is, it doesn't, this, it doesn't right. fucking matter. This did not do very well, and it's a shame. I agree. I would have wanted to see more of these two. Even like that one pitch of like them trying to do it as a TV series at some point. I wouldn't have minded a TV series either. If they no. were like kind of spin that off necessarily. I, I'm curious though, Adam, to, to go back to something I kind of referenced earlier. You're not a fan usually of like sort of precocious kid characters. How do you feel about the Angoria Rice daughter character? I mean, to be fair, it's my least favorite part of the movie, but it's also a very necessary part of the movie. It grounds both of our leads a little bit, uh, so it doesn't bother me as much. And I think she's really good in it. Yeah. You know, most of the time when I don't like precocious kid actors, because the kid actors a lot of times are really bad, but she's, she's actually pretty good in it. She's actually quite charming. Yeah, I hope she gets some more stuff to do, because since this, yeah. she's done, like, she's Betty Brandt in those Spider-Man movies. Oh, that is her! Right. Holy shit! Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's fun when she pops up in those movies, but I hope she, be, yeah. like, continues to, like, kind of, like, rise up a bit more as, like, a, a fun actress. Because in here, like, she has, like, the timing down. And she busts these guys' balls. Right. But at the same I mean, time, she does also feel like an actual kid with elements like when mm-hmm. she first sees Russell Crowe, she's like, wow, you were guy- you beat people up, that's your job? Can you beat up my friend Jenny? <laughs> <laughs> tries to get really tries to get him like 13 bucks or something like that. <laughs> how much you got <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good but even that's a good thing no we're not talking about this what are you talking about we're just having a conversation like it's so good but again that's what makes these characters work so well together in these type movies that on the surface they they couldn't be further away from each other you know as far as like personality and stuff and even ethics but when it boils down to it they're both kind of the same guy there's so much 
conflicting, but the, they have a couple core things in common, and that's what really makes it work. An underrated bit of even this movie to me is the bit where Ryan Gosling is drunk at that party and goes to try and question the bartender. And it's like, hey, have you seen uh, this girl named Angelique? Uh, she's about black hair, and she, he does like the thing for height. <laughs> And he just mixes up yeah. his words. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> and, and, and even in terms of, like, the 70s aesthetic of it, we should point out, like, that you mentioned this, but we can't emphasize enough how they do such a great job of recreating, like, the, not just, like, the costumes and stuff, but even the look of all these different places, like the hotel, or even, like, when they're driving down, the few shots in L.A. were actually shot, like, for, like, any of the street scenes. Like, they recreate stuff, like, the Comedy Store fucking logo that was, like, exactly from that era. Uh-huh, 100%. I think it's like Tim Allen, uh, Richard Lewis, and I forget the third one, who's on the marquee. Right, uh, but even just, like, the look of everything, it feels, despite the fact that it's clearly shot, like, HD in, like, 2016, it just feels like, oh, you're still immersed in, like, this is a 70s-era movie, and it doesn't have to just, like, emphasize it with just needle drops and shit like that. And they treat everything, like, even as far as down to the wardrobe and the makeup, where it's not over the top. Not everybody's wearing flashy suits and, you know, sparkly dresses and everything. It looks very much like everybody's a real living person in this era. You know, we're sometimes, and I'm sure you've noticed when movies do that, and they go back to the 70s and stuff. <clears throat> Stay tuned to maybe one of my bad picks. But uh, everybody's like always in immaculate suits with immaculate hair and immaculate makeup and all the the diamonds and the gems and the necklaces and everything else. This one doesn't. They just show you normal people. Right. And I really appreciate it. It makes it feel more realistic and more lived in and, you know, obviously makes it more relatable to, I don't know, the most important person, the viewer. Right. There's there's a more of like a, a shittiness to like their even like Ryan Gosling's suits even like you can see how like that might have been stylish, but he's just so frumpled. And so, like, we're even, like, with his 70s, like, porn stash, like, if he had actually gussed that up a bit, it would have maybe looked good, but it looks, like, so scraggly and shitty. I got it. The thing is, it's so funny that you brought up his suits, because that, that was something I want to mention. His suits, like, yeah, they look like they could be nice, but for some reason, even this movie, they look like they'd have been cool, like, three to five years ago. Right. Like, they even look like outdated 70s suits in the 70s. Like, it's so funny to me. Like, he thinks he's still being so fucking hip, but you can tell everybody else thinks he's square, man. Meanwhile, I also love that Russell Crowe was wearing clearly out-of-style shit, but he doesn't care. Uh, it doesn't give a fuck. Right. Not what fuck, dude. <laughs> By the way, Russell Crowe has one of my favorite spit takes ever. Right, when he's with his girlfriend at the... Yes. Yeah. I'm fucking your dad. <laughs> and he spills the drink on her at the same time. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's it's such a bummer. Like this didn't do well, and then Shane Black followed this up with The Predator, which for a lot of reasons did not end up working out necessarily. Uh, um, and I think he's trying to do something else at this point. He's been like on a couple of different projects, but I just hope that dude is able to like kind of get back to like maybe not doing this like all the time necessarily, but to at least like work consistently and kind of use his aesthetic on like some kind of other project. I'd tell you, man, I'd love to see more good buddy cop type movies. You know, he's one of the masters at it. I'd love to see this guy go back to doing this type of stuff. Maybe not constantly, like you said, but one every couple of years, I'd be totally down. Yeah, some kind of at least buddy movie. It doesn't have to even be cops necessarily. Like, I like the no, fact No, I mean, that, these guys aren't cops. Right, no, they're just inept detectives, which, right. I, like, there's so many great reaction shots of people just being like, what the fuck? Like, Keith David, particularly, when Ryan Gosling starts crying, just like, oh, my God, pull yourself together, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the movie just like, it, yep. it, it, I love that it throws away certain gags even. Like it just tosses them off in a way that feels so like cool and confident, but it's almost like we have to keep going with our story. Like the bit where they question that one dude about just like what's going on or whatever down the hall. Just like, oh, I had no problem. Thanks, buddy. How'd you know my name was Buddy? <laughs> Yeah, I know it's so stupid. It's so stupid. And they know it's kind of stupid. They're just like, well, just have it happen, and then we're going to keep going with the story, which we should also mention. I do love the mystery story of this movie. Me too. And how it like it's really it good. in with like the the porn industry angle and all sorts of stuff. And Margaret Qualley, I think, is quite good. This is like I think, the first time I really noticed her in anything. And I was like, oh. uh, yeah, I think it was me too. And, yeah. she, and she's really stellar, especially when like she's going kind of like haywire in the middle of Angoria Rice's room. <laughs> They're trying to get her to calm down. And she's like, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of fun. Even like once again, another thing about, you know, the sort of failure of these characters, uh, she ends up dead by the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. And I actually kind of respect it for that. Believe it. I mean, it's horrible. The character dies, but still you respect it that it's not all nice and buttoned up. Like you said, and I, I completely didn't even think about it, but Russell Crowe becomes a fucking drunk again at the end. Like, it's just, yeah, these guys might have saved the day. They might be on a, you know, a, a decent future, but they're still just habitual fuck ups. Right. And they, they still, even after that big, exciting, climactic chasing, which, like you mentioned, most of this was shot in Atlanta. This is the first time I'd seen this movie since I went to Dragon Con. And uh, the moment they walked out of, like, that hotel during, like, the climax, I'm like, oh my god, that's the fucking, like, the Hilton <laughs> Hotel that I've been at several times in downtown Atlanta. <laughs> Aren't you so fucking cool? Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't go to Atlanta. That's true. Not a very populated city with a lot of people. No, nobody. Yeah, nobody. Nobody goes to Atlanta. <laughs> no one. At all. Yeah, it's it's become the new Portland. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Adam. Uh, let's go ahead and do some final thoughts here about the nice guys. Your final thoughts. Uh, like I said, I think it's one of the most underrated, underappreciated movies of the last, you know, fifteen, maybe even twenty years. I just think it's so well done, so brilliantly acted, brilliant shot, great soundtrack and score, uh, really good mystery, great chemistry between two really likable leads. Uh, I just, this movie hits it on every fucking level, yet, you know, nobody's seen it, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I think it has like a bit of like a cult following necessarily to it, but I would love that to increase. I would love, this is definitely a movie where like I've recommended it to certain people and I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I see that? Just like, because you were seeing Captain America Civil War or whatever the fuck that summer and you didn't see this. That's the problem. Yeah, don't feel bad. Nobody's seen it. It's a movie that, you know, I've bemoaned this many times on the show about just like the sort of state of modern cinema where like we get kind of like overgrown in IP and, like, a fun movie like this that's original and has, like, Shane Black kind of, like, doing his familiar things but in a diff- with different characters and different actors doing fun things just isn't, you know, kind of disappears in the shuffle of, like we said, Angry Birds and Civil War and it the fuck ever. And uh, it's a shame. But at the same time, I hope it is discovered by more people for, like, the funny, engaging mystery, you know, really great, like, performances also. So it gets recognized by more people because uh, it's a very fun and, like you mentioned, very underrated, underappreciated film. For sure. But now, Adam, it's time that we do our a weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 Redo. So uh, the Double Redo is a segment we do every week where, um, you know, to complement our two features we talk about, Adam and I each 
bring up a good and a bad feature related to the topic in question, uh, that we recommend one and don't recommend another. And so Adam has a good and a bad pick, I have mine. So Adam, what are yours for 70s period pieces? Alrighty, so for my good choice, I have a movie that you and I actually discovered on a movie night together that uh, was very, very good and not what at least I expected it to be. I have the little scene, Jason Statham, The Bank Job. Uh, it's this really cool British gangster heist movie. Uh, got a lot of twists and turns to it. Statham does a really good job at it. He's not like the ultimate badass we know him to be. He's just a thief. Uh, there's a lot of great supporting characters. It's pretty exciting. The actual heist scene is really fun where they're underwater and stuff. I, do, I just think it's a really, really fun little movie. And then for my bad, I have a movie that I was sort of addre- alluding to earlier where everybody is constantly in the sexiest of clothes and you know they want to think everybody's cool and it's stacked cast by big director it got oscar attention and all this stuff and i remember seeing it when it came out and thinking this is pretentious i watched it again recently within the last six months and thought it was even more pretentious plus the director is incredibly problematic i have american hustle a couple good performances sure like i think christian bale is fine in it uh, amy adams is pretty good in it bradley cooper is even okay as a slime ball it's just comes across to me like Look how fucking cool this we can be, all of us actors. We'll do a big ensemble piece, and we know we'll get nominated. David O. Russell, hell yeah, get on board, you piece of fuck. It's just, ah, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I have seen both your movies. As you mentioned, we did watch The Bank Job together, and that was the first time I'd never seen it. And, uh, yeah, with that weird sort of, like, Statham sort of, like, run of him doing, like, his sort of Bronson era of, like, here's, a, like, a small mid-budget action movie for me to do. Um, I think that one's probably my one of my favorites of those. Uh, it has, a, like you mentioned, like, a lot of great sort of, like, heist stuff, but also there's, like, a bit of a comedic charm in terms of they're kind of, like, fuck-up lower-middle-class dudes who are just, like, let's try and steal from a bank or whatever, and there's a lot of, like, charm to that, but also there's a lot of style and sleekness. It's a really, I think, underrated of sort of uh, version of this I, I would agree of like a 70s period piece movie especially the style of it is another great example where it looks period appropriate but it's not all super stylish there are some stylish elements but they're like working class dudes who are wearing like 70s era working class appropriate attire yeah the they're wearing time. like pea coats and shit yeah. like yeah they're right. just, yeah it, it works really well and American Hustle is a movie I have not watched since it came out in the theater but I remember at like, it's a movie that I feel like I was kind of hornswoggled by, um, because I remember seeing it in the theater, I'm like, oh my god, this is, like, sleek and stylish, and there's all this Oscar hype and all these, like, big famous people in it, this is so fucking fun, and then within, like, I don't know, 24 hours after watching I'm like, was he really that good? And then I thought about it more, like, oh no, it really wasn't, it was just kind of, like, stylish and flashy and kind of empty, <laughs> ultimately, uh, kind of like a lot of, you know, David Russell's movies, good thing he's not doing a big ensemble cast movie that a bunch of people, including, like, Christian Bale are coming back for, that just got a trailer. In yeah, we wouldn't want that to happen. No. But yeah, American Hustle still is like, it's a movie that like, I've been tempted to revisit just to like, actually look at it for what it actually is. But um, at the same time, I don't know if I wouldn't necessarily bother, you know, I don't want to necessarily bother with most of David Russell's movies anymore, shockingly. Uh, but I have my double redo choices here. And so um, I'll go first with uh, my good pick um, is uh, a movie from uh, Sofia Coppola 
who's a director I would definitely like to discuss at some point in the future. Um, I have her debut feature, The Virgin Suicides. I, I'm aware that, like, when this movie came out, at least, there was a lot of, like, the question of, like, oh, she's Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. Is this, like, a nepotism thing? There was still even that sting from, like, Godfather Part Three, almost a decade prior, and it's like, oh, is this going to work? And I think The Virgin Suicides is a great example of how to make, like, a period piece drama without, like, relying too much on, like, sort of 70s nostalgia necessarily, because the movie that clearly takes place in the 70s with the aesthetics of it, but it's so much more of, like, a sort of movie about, like, looking back at a memory and thinking about it so much in the context of, like, oh, we're, like, these boys looking back at this time when we were, like, so obsessed with this group of sisters who lived in the neighborhood, and there's, like, you know, moments where it feels like kind of a joyful, like, remember that 70s era, that carefree time, but also a lot of, like, the societal pressure we put on women at the particular point, and how much we ignore the actual facets of their humanity, and just kind of hid behind the fact, of like, oh, they're, like, angelic beings, but really they were, you know, kids who were, like, fucked up by living in a world that, like, kind of pressured them into sex, and had, like, you know, these parents that are very sort of, like, strict about them, who are wonderfully played, like Kathleen Turner, a phenomenal performance, and even, as much as I don't like James Woods, it's weirdly one of the most sympathetic turns he's ever done in a movie. And it's kind of stunning, even given, like, when he was a good actor, he would do, like, these piece-of-shit characters. It's one of his real, like, genuine sweet performances that really works. And there's a bunch of, like, Kirsten Dunst's early role is, like, phenomenal in this, or even uh, probably the best use of Josh Hartnett, in a movie, it's like the heartthrob kid. He's like kind of fucking perfectly cast as that. And I think it's a stellar little like tragic, small, but really investing drama that also like has a great use of the soundtrack of the air and all this other stuff. I think it's a great movie. Um, and then for my bad pick for this, I have uh, more of a big budget affair, Super 8, the only original film from J.J. Abrams, uh, which is fascinating because it's not really that original a movie, because uh, it was very much sort of hyped as like, oh, it's him doing his like big Amblin Spielberg-y style movie, Steven Spielberg produced it, it's an Amblin movie, and it's just like him trying to do that aesthetic, and it feels kind of like watching a kid put on their dad's clothes and imitate their dad, where like initially, that's kind of cute. Um, you know, for maybe, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so, but the more it goes on, the more it's just like, okay, this is getting kind of grating, and you're just, like, doing a very bad imitation of your dad or whatever. It feels so much like that, even though there's interesting stuff, like, this is an early role for Elle Fanning, and I think she's really good in it. Even, like, most of the kids are fine, like, the kid actors we follow, but it's such a stale kind of, like, rehash of various different Spielberg elements, particularly maybe one of the most forgettable bad big-budget monsters I've seen in a movie from, like, this decade, like, the 2010s. Like, such a forgettable, bland monster that has no real character to it, despite how much they try and put into it. And, yeah, it's just, like, it, it's very much like a shallow recreation of so much that came before, which J.J. Abrams has done plenty of times before, but I would argue with a bit more spirit and heart to it to some degree in, like, A Force Awakens, or even to some extent, like, Mission Impossible, even though he was kind of switching things up. Point is, like, at least some of those other movies that he's done don't feel quite as hollow as this one does. Though still, it's not as bad as Rise of Skywalker. I'll give it that much. Okay, so I've never seen Virgin Suicides. Uh, that is not a movie that was ever on my radar. Not that I don't want to see it. I just never got around to it. I, I wouldn't mind seeing it, of course, but just one of those things. So I'm going to take your word for it, buddy. And Super 8, uh, I saw once. I'd be hard-pressed to tell you anything about it. Other than the fact that I remember being completely kind of bummed out with how the alien looked. Uh, to the point to where I'm looking at pictures of it now, and I'm like, 
oh, is that is what? It, oh, that's what it looked like. I do. I get, I remember being bummed out about it, but I completely forgot what it looked like. If if that makes sense, I'm looking at it now, and yeah, this is so boring and bland. Yeah, you know that movie also had a problem going for it too. I mean, uh, let's let's face it, the main cop. Oh right, Chandler. Right, your your arch nemesis okay. apparently. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you, Chandler. But um. Yeah, I just remember thinking, uh, being kind of pumped for it, because I'm like, oh, J.J. Abrams doing like a old-school Amblin movie. This could be cool. And then, of course, because it's J.J. Abrams and there was an alien in it, I, I, everybody got swept up. Is it, a th- is it like tied to Cloverfield? And blah, 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 blah. And they did try and have like a bit of like that viral marketing thing with it. I they did try. Yeah, you know, they definitely tried. Uh, and yeah, I just remember being really bored and sort of let down with the whole thing. Yeah, it's a shame when the best part of that movie is over the end credits, you see the movie the kids are making and the adorable, badly made, like, zombie home video movie. Which is a better movie. Right, it's a better movie. It's much shorter. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's go ahead and uh, relay our uh, choices once again in case uh, people may have not heard them. Uh, Adam, go ahead and repeat your titles. Okay, my good was The Bank Job, and for bad, I had American Hustle. And uh, for my good, I had The Virgin Suicides, and the bad, I have Super 8. And uh, we recommend you submit your own double reduced choices to us at some of the feedback uh, places we'll mention as we wrap up here, but stay tuned for our picking for next week's episode on that. Uh, But before we get out of here, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water, that's night with a K underscore of underscore water on twitter where you can find a link treat all his great artworks and stuff and thanks of course to our patreon supporters at patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just one dollar a month you all get to pick uh topics that we cover in individual movies like for example you picked this patreon redemption thing of uh you know 70s period pieces so thank you so much for that and you have another chance to pick a topic for next month uh because uh the week that we're releasing this episode uh the next day on wednesdays we usually post up polls we'll have uh our Topic poll for, uh, we're going back to the world of fantasy films. And uh, for this one, we're going more for a specific subgenre. So we're asking you all to pick between urban fantasy, which is sort of like a fantastical element interacting with like our you know natural world in modern times, versus old school medieval fantasy films. Ooh. I like that. What are you thinking? Uh, I don't know, you know, I we if nothing else, the, the previous ones we did for um, fantasy kind of fit more into like that '80s era aesthetic. So uh-huh. if anything else, I would kind of like to maybe go for more medieval because there's a bit more, you know, that definitely skews a bit older. But then again, you know, urban fantasy also has a lot of fun to it as well. So I'm good with either myself. Yeah, I think I'm good with either for sure. And uh, you all will decide that if you become a patron once again for just one dollar, you get to vote in that poll. Uh, but for more of us, uh, please find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And also you can email us feedback and even like double redo choices over at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. I'll spell it out. And uh, for more of me, find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. Or you can find me on Facebook at my actual name. Uh, just if you want to add me on there, send me a message. Let me know that you are a fan of the show and I'll add you. We can shoot the shit. Or you can find me on Letterbox at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N. 
And uh, for more of our audio antics, uh, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our great podcast network, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? And uh, you can also dig into the archives uh, on our Podbean main feed for like nearly 200 episodes before we even joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon for the dollar, that's cool. Money can be tight, no matter what the situation. Uh, the completely free way to help us out, though, is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, it's easy. Do it, please, fuckers. <laughs> well, now, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week's episode. As we do at the end of every episode, you know, um, each of us has either two good or two bad choices. We switch up on the quality for that. And uh, we assign them between one and ten for both those choices. And that gets us our good and our bad pick uh, to cover for the next episode. So someone will say, oh, hey, I'm picking number eight. And the other person's like, okay, that's closest to number nine, which is this particular movie. Unless we get that as a good, then, you know, switch off the roles and then we get our bad pick the same way. But keep in mind, there is this rule that we have, the Godfather rule. Brad and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to um, basically use if we hear a choice that we're like, you know what, I don't want to actually cover that. And we say, actually, I'll take the cannoli unless that choice is eliminated and we go with whatever other alternate choice the person had. We have to use that by May. It's used or lose it. So uh, it's just burning a hole in our back pockets. We might end up using it for this particular episode. We decided to cover a subgenre that has a wide breadth to it. And I think also it's one of my favorite sort of little subgenres that doesn't get talked about enough of one crazy night movies. We're basically just movies that take place over the course of one night. Where a bunch of shenanigans happen, baby. Right, all sorts of shenanigans happen. And like I said, when we talked about this, Adam, as a topic, we kind of realized, oh, there's so much like this could encompass like either a comedy, but also like a horror movie, action Anything. movie. Anything. Absolutely yeah. anything. Yeah, right. for sure. I'm curious for your two good choices, and I have my two bad choices. So, Adam, for your two good choices, um, I'm going to pick number nine. At number nine, I have, which I consider a genre mashup. I have Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, okay. You know, honestly, I did not expect that. I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, that perfectly fits. So, you know what? I'm not going to take the cannoli because that movie is quite fun. Yeah, movie's fucking great. All right. So at number one, I had uh, what I think is sort of the modern equivalent of the comedy, trying to get a party going and about a lie of Superbad. Yeah. Um, I remember loving Superbad when I was younger. I've revisited recently and it's still fun. Um, it's not the height of comedy I thought it was at like 17. Or no, whatever. but it's but still, it still fun. Is fun. It's still fun. Yep. All right. For my two bad choices, Adam, number between one and ten. What do you want me to do? Pick a nose? Pick a pickled pepper? A child to die? Like Sophie's choice? The, I love the cultural legacy of Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium as you fucking doing this non-impression of what fucking does not Not at all. Not, at all. not even close. <laughs> it's, it's just Ned Wynn voice, which I'm all for. Yeah, yeah me too. Alright, I'll go number seven. Okay. Over at number six... I have a movie I haven't seen, but was one that was kind of, you know, not necessarily that popular at the time it came out. Um, I have uh, the largely forgotten but star-studded Rough Night. Oh, uh, is that the one with fucking Scarlett Johansson? The one with Scarlett Johansson, yes. Oh, God, yeah, I haven't seen that either. Uh... Are you going to uh, take that cannoli, though? No, blind? no, I won't take the cannoli. No, because it's blind. Because I don't know. So, yeah, okay. And um, on the other side of things, over at number one, I had a movie I would love to talk about on the show at some point. It's kind of a fun, bad one that I'm 
is so I discovered last Halloween. It's so good. I have Spookies. Oh, I haven't seen that either. I've heard good things, but I haven't seen it either. It, it's a very much sort of the so bad it's good thing. That that one is one I will definitely consider bringing back up at some point when it's appropriate. Cool. Uh, but okay, so Rough Night and uh, From Dust Till Dawn, another bizarre double feature we'll get to uh-huh. next time. Well, on that note, Adam, uh, it's time that we made our exit, and uh, I'm going to do that by dropping into the pool and interrogate those mermaids. They gotta know something! You go ahead and do that, buddy. I don't swim with the fishes.